This is the Urban Astronomer Podcast. This show brought to you by Constellation Media. Hello, everybody, and welcome. This is Alan Fadisfeld speaking, and you're listening to the 11th episode of Season 2 of the Urban Astronomer Podcast. This episode, we've got an interview lined up with Nicole Thomas, a PhD student at the University of the Western Cape, with an interest in the evolution of galaxies and the supermassive black holes that lie within. We recorded this conversation only a week ago, and I really enjoyed speaking to her. I found her childhood interest in how the universe works very relatable, and especially her need to understand what's going on underneath it all. Sadly, this is the final interview with a real astronomer of this season of the Urban Astronomer podcast, but I'm especially happy with this one, so I hope you'll enjoy it. Before we get started, though, I just want to offer a quick shout out to my patrons who have supported the show financially. That's Catherine, Peter, Frank Tippin, and George Palmer. You all make a huge difference, and I'm lucky to have you behind me. So, without any further delay, here is Nicole Thomas. Okay, so could you could you tell me a bit about yourself, um, who you are, what you do? Sure. So I'm Nicole Thomas. I'm a second year PhD student at the University of the Western Cape. Uh, my work primarily focuses on trying to understand the role of supermassive black holes in galaxy evolution, and all of this by using um, cosmological hydrodynamic simulations, which is just a fancy way of saying large scale and using sort of fluid mechanics and gas physics and all of those fancy. So the easy stuff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course. <laughs> I often tell people, man, these are some of the most difficult uh, things I, that I'm aware of in, in, in physics to, to work with. So that sounds pretty yeah. complex. Yeah, no, it is really, because I mean, you have so many things you need to take into consideration. I mean, it's not like you're just modeling one thing. You need to model pretty much everything, especially in terms of galaxy evolution, because you have sort of all of the physics that goes into there's gravity, there's fluid mechanics, there's you need to account for how stars form, how black holes accrete mass, and just like a whole bunch of different physical processes. So it's all of these things going into one big machine. And so when you're looking at your results and your analysis, you have to take into consideration all of these things. And I mean, I'm not going to lie and say that I fully understand all of these different processes because, I mean, I don't and I'm still learning. Um, mm-hmm. But one always has to be sort of aware of how different physics can influence other processes. So it's it's quite dynamic and quite complicated and complex. But it's all interesting because, I mean, you have it right there. You can actually figure out where things are happening and how things are happening, um, which is a bit harder in terms of doing observations where you pretty much only have the light that you see and you can, um, I guess, sort of deduce deduce from that light and the spectrum and things certain physical processes. But there's, yeah, there's just so much more going on in simulations. And I'm not saying that simulations are better or anything like that, but Mm -hmm. I think they're pretty cool. (laughs) 
So what is your, your process then? I mean, you look at the, your, your normal scientific method, you know, you have an hypothesis and then you test it and whatever. How does that actually play out then? I mean, do you have a theoretical understanding that you're starting with and then you try to to model it in simulations and then compare your results to, to something observational? Or, or yeah, is there, pretty, pretty much. Are you doing all like those that. steps yourself? Um, so not, not me. So we have a... A suite of simulations it's called Simba <laughs> and basically the whole sort of idea with simulations uh, in, so I'm going to speak from a galaxy evolution simulation point of view so there are certain things that we are confident about in our understanding in terms of galaxy evolution and large-scale structure and all of those things so those things we can model fairly well so that is, so we have that as our basis for the simulation. And then there are things that we think we understand fairly well just from observations, like the way um, maybe matter is distributed in the universe, how much is dark matter, how much is normal matter, all of those sort of things. Um, so we apply that as well. And then we start looking at the more complicated things, like how do stars form and how do galaxies form and how do black holes accrete and all of those things like I mentioned a bit earlier. Um, so that we, we have some rough understanding, we think we can model it. So, and there are things that we make certain assumptions about whether they're true or not is still a matter of debate. So those we all sort of put into the simulation. Um, and then we run that simulation from some very long time ago all the way until now. And what we see at the end, we obviously hope would look like what we see in the night sky today. So by comparing these two things, we can say, okay, um, maybe it doesn't look like what the night sky looks like today. So we need to take a step back, see where the issue might lie, what assumptions might have been wrong, and maybe change those assumptions and then rerun everything, see what it looks like again, and if there have been improvements or maybe it's become even worse and so it's a it's a bit of a back and forth in that case so what we do for our simulations at least so for galaxy evolution your um, main property when you look at a galaxy is its mass in terms of stars so that is fairly well calculated so what we try to do is try to match essentially the distribution of masses within galaxies that we see today um, and if we match that, then we know our, the processes we include for how stars form and how um, galaxies grow and those things are fairly well um, constrained. Uh, and then from there, we can look at other sort of um, properties of galaxies, like how much gas they have and how large their supermassive black hole is and how many uh, little satellite galaxies uh, they have around it, etc., etc. So it's it's quite a a big <laughs> scientific process, I guess, uh, yeah. scientific method. Um, so we have essentially, I mean, not one person can do all of this at one time. So we have little groups that focus on different parts. Uh, so I focus primarily on the black holes. Uh, we have someone that. Um, focuses on how sort of x-ray heating affects galaxies. Um, we have others that focus on star formation, others that focus on gas. So we have different groups to sort of just 
focus on the necessary uh, topics, perhaps topics that are um, specifically interesting at the moment. So for me, the black holes are quite interesting because, I mean, we have this amazing instrument that's up and coming and started going, the SKA, of course. So Meerkat's already up and running and we've already seen some incredible images. So that's why the reason the link between myself and this is that with Meerkat and with the SKA, you see these amazing radio galaxies. And these are typically fueled by supermassive black holes at the center of the galaxy. And the processes as to what causes... Um, so in terms of radio galaxies, you can typically see these large jets um, being emitted from the sense of the galaxy and the physical processes sort of as to why that is happening is still not very well understood um, so from my point of view what I can do is try to understand how these black holes are creating and how they could possibly lead up to or how they relate to um, having these jets so for me, that's it's a hot topic right now. It's a hot topic with Meerkat and the SKA. So um, I think that is one of probably the, the top focuses we have for the simulation at the moment. So what I can essentially do is make predictions for what we expect to see with Meerkat in terms of these radio galaxies, um, and then also see how these evolve with time, because that we don't really know um, a lot about as well. Um, so yeah, that's uh, why I find what I do interesting and why I think it's an important topic. But what I wanted to ask you was, um, you were talking about um, there being a team of people working, each looking at different parts. Um, are these, so are you all working together on the same simulation, just focusing on individual parts, or do you do your own individual simulations to sort of nail down your own theory, which then gets put together later? Um, no, so it is essentially that we all work on the same simulation because um, essentially what you want to do is you want to focus on this the certain aspect and see obviously how it um, compares to observation. Um, so there are times when you need to improve these models um, because some of the assumptions, as I said, maybe are not necessarily uh, as accurate as can be. So. A lot of the time you do have, um, there are people that try to, that will try to improve the model by make, maybe making certain adjustments to it. Um, but at the moment, we're not doing that because Simba, for example, just in, in my field at, or in my group at least, Simba is relatively new. So we want to do, and the analysis isn't like sort of very quick and go. So it's fairly new, so we're still doing a lot of the analysis, and I think it all will stick to this one model for still some time before we find any necessary adjustments that need to be made. Um, so at the moment, we don't have anyone making any changes to the model. Um, right now, we're all just focusing on what we currently have within the simulation. So it's, it, sounds, it sounds almost as if you're still testing out the models to see and the software to see how it performs under different parameters and so, if yeah, it's any use. Yeah, essentially, that's kind of what you do. So um, mm. we're, not, we're no longer tweaking the simulation or anything. So there was a phase where 
before the first paper was published where certain adjustments were made to certain models just to sort of um, just to tweak things a little bit and sort of um, polish it. Um, But the moment the the first paper came out, which is at the start of this year, we decided, okay, we're going to specifically focus on this model that we have now, because the moment you start publishing the results from the simulation, um, you can't really change anything because then you're going to have, if you have two papers come out on two different models, then it's not going to really... um, won't be repeatable. Yeah, it's, it's you're not doing the same thing. So, uh, we we're sticking to the one model we have now, uh, essentially. Yeah. This almost sounds like an industrial process. You know, my, <laughs> my background working in uh, like software engineering and development environments, mm-hmm. not as a coder myself, but there's a very similar thing there where really you're just working with very big and complicated software and mm-hmm. there's certain compromises you have to make if you're ever going to get a a result out. Yeah. And you can always and you can always come back later for like version two, you know. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, and yeah, if you is- try and yeah, if you try and uh, and especially when you're trying to fix a problem, if you try and there's thousands of variables that might be responsible, and if you sit and go tweaking all of them, then you end up learning nothing. Exactly. No, that's exactly true. So that's why we do we have we stick to a model and we say, okay, this is the one we're going to work with, and that's why we have everyone sort of working on different parts of the simulation. So then you do the analysis and you, as I said, you can sort of see whether the result you get is what you expect to see in observations or what had been seen. And obviously if the two disagree, you know that there might not be something right there. So once everyone's done their job, you can say, okay, so these are the results we found. This is where it looks like things are going wrong. And then, as you say, we can you bring out version two where you adjust that thing that you think is wrong and then do it all over again. Mm. So yeah. it's an incremental cyclical process where you'll gradually converge on something yeah. that looks correct. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. But obviously, you, you do want your simulations to be as realistic as possible. So you don't just go on and make random tweaks. Your, yeah. your tweaks need to be realistic. Um, because, I mean, you, you could do some random things, but you need to, at the end of the day, be able to justify what you've done and actually make sense of it. I mean, it's no point to you create a simulation to look exactly like what we see in the night sky, but what you've done to get there isn't physical. That completely defeats the purpose. Uh, okay, then, steer us back to you a little bit. Um mm-hmm. Where do you come from? I mean, how did you? This is all very, very interesting stuff to me. But how did you end up in a in this field? You know, how did you end up in astronomy in general? Yeah, no, it is um, <laughs> very interesting. Like I, so in school, so I grew up, sorry, in in Balbul in Cape Town, um, mm-hmm. in the northern suburbs of Cape Town. And when I was in school, I mean, I always loved physics. I loved knowing how things worked and why they worked. And I loved being able to make sense of that and being able to put it in terms, I guess, in mathematical terms that actually describes what's happening. So I loved physics and I loved math and all of those things. I didn't really mm. know much about astronomy. But when I, I think I was in high school, early years of high school, some friends and I actually went to 
the planetarium, uh, the Zico uh, Museum and Planetarium, and we watched this documentary called The Cosmic Egg. Um, and it was basically about how we can only see so much of the universe um, in all directions. And it just really upset me because I always wanted to know, like, why. I, I mean, when I was little, I would stand outside and look to the stars and wonder why I couldn't see anything between the stars. And it was all really upsetting. And I just, I wanted to know more. I wanted to know why I wasn't allowed to do more than just what my body was capable of. Uh, if that makes sense. So, how old were you? Um, when I went to see this document, I mean, standing outside and wondering all these things. I mean, I, I I can't tell you how old I was. I feel like it was most of my life, probably. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> but when I went to see this documentary, that basically told me we cannot see further than so many light years away, uh, because this is just how the universe works. I I thought, you know what? No, that's that's not okay. Um, mm -hmm. I need to know why this is and how we can use technology to improve um, our human limitations. Uh, at that point, I was probably about, I don't, I don't know, like 15 or 16 years old. Um, okay. So I was still in school. So that's when I decided, okay, no, this is the career I want to go into. I want to know more. Um, and it's, it's also really fascinating because they, the fact of the matter is there are certain things that we will just never know um, or comprehend. Um, and that, yeah, that just riles me up a little bit. So I thought, you know what, this is what I want to do. And I applied for uh, astronomy at UCT. I applied for physics at UWC because UWC, which is the University of the Western Cape, uh, didn't have astronomy as a major. Um, but then I ended up going to uwc anyway to do physics and it was actually such an incredible experience because there are so many like, just the department that i felt was so comfortable and so supportive um and i met some incredible people while i was there we did have astronomy courses as well which was obviously um very great because that's essentially where I, what i was interested in and my third year astronomy lecturers, which at the time was uh, Professor Roy Martins, who is uh, still at the astronomy department at UWC, as well as actually my current supervisor, uh, they were very supportive and really motivated me to continue this journey. So I ended up applying for the National Astrophysics and Space Science Program, which at the time was based at UCT, um, there was only one. So essentially what this program is, so it brings students from all over the country and tries to get everyone essentially on the same level of astronomy and computing and all of those things. Um, and then sort of helps you get through um, astronomy as a possible career. Uh, so that's what I did for my honors. Um, and it was, mm -hmm. again, incredible experience I met so many people that I'm so very close with. Um, and yeah, it was just, just, just an awesome experience. So I ended up doing that for my master's as well. Um, so the, the, the thing with your master's is essentially you have about six months of coursework you do. Um, and then for the following year and a half, you go to wherever your supervisor is. So essentially people from all academics from all over the country can uh, propose a 
project for the student to do. Um, and then depending on whether you choose that project or not, you go to wherever that academic is based. Uh, so for me, that was back at the University of the Western Cape. Uh, so I completed that in 2017, end of 2017, um, okay. and then started my PhD um, start of last year, uh, still with the same supervisor. Um, the reason I'm <laughs> still specifically interested in the simulations and part of things is, I mean, I, I've always loved computing. And using computers to essentially solve problems uh, in terms of physics and mathematics. Um, so I always found simulations extremely fascinating because I thought it was such a powerful tool. And you, you have everything right there. You, you know what you're putting into the simulation uh, and you know what those um, processes are doing and you know why you get a certain outcome. Um, mm. And I, I thought that was so, so cool because, I mean, I, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with observations. Let me just say again, it's very, very cool stuff that people do. But I like having the sounds, I don't know how else to put this, but I love having the answers in front of me that I can sort of dig into and analyze. Um, right. I, I was sort of torn between doing that and then just doing standard cosmology but the simulations did win me over um because as i say it's an incredibly powerful tool and you get some very interesting things out of it and you can make awesome pictures and movies and all of those things and you have the ability to as i say l look at how things evolve so you can select a galaxy and see how that galaxy has evolved through time which is something you can't do with um observations unfortunately mm -hmm. um but yeah i mean the, the observations obviously are so important as well because i mean that's essentially what we put into our simulations we need those to put constraints on the physics that we do but yeah so that's that's pretty much how i got here um a lot of anger <laughs> and wanting things um so yeah, that that that's led me here, and I I wouldn't change anything about it. It's been a really awesome journey so far. Um, obviously that it's had its ups and downs. Like a, a lot of the time, I mean, most of my work is doing um is programming and sort of those things, which I love to do. Um, uh, but there there are times where you sort of get to a point where you're like, okay, uh, so I've done this. What do I do now? I have to write up some things and. I hate writing. <laughs> uh, that's, that's still something I need to learn to enjoy. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's either, sometimes it gets boring. Sometimes it gets really frustrating when you're not going, getting the results you want and you can't figure out why. When you have bugs mm. in your code. Um, when sometimes you have a bit of um, imposter syndrome and you feel absolutely awful, but you get through it and yeah. No, Technology does that, eh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, there are lots a uh, lot of ups and downs yeah, but uh, mm. overall it's been a, a brilliant experience I, I don't know if I'm just particularly fortunate in terms of the journey I've had but I've, I've had a good run <laughs> what would you say has been the most difficult part then for you oh wow um so yeah that's a tough question that's a really good question um 
I think the toughest part for me has just been so I've I've been fortunate to travel quite a bit. Um starting from a couple of years ago, I spent about I spent six months in Oxford. Uh I came back for three months or so and I went back for six months. Uh came back for another three months or so and then I went up to Edinburgh for five months. So I've had a, a very little time actually based home and a lot of time being completely on my own, not knowing anyone or having to make new relationships. And that was tough in the sense that you don't have, although you do still have the support from home and everyone standing by you, you don't have that physical, like I can see all the support sort of. Yeah. So that, that was a bit tough in the first bit. Um, of course, when you do go to places like this, it is incredibly intimidating. Um, obviously, it gets better with time. Once you get there, it's obviously so daunting. Um, so just getting to adapt to those sort of situations, was it was tough. But um, as I say, you do get through it and it gets easier. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I could say that that is the hardest part, but it it was. Yeah, it's, it's something different that I wasn't used to. Um, but yeah, as we said, with the with the writing and with all the things going on, there there are things you have to learn to do. Because I mean, there is quite a lot of travelling involved in um, academia and in astronomy. Uh, it's quite an international um, field. Uh, but at the same time, what's really awesome from that is that you do make these new relationships and collaborations and networks. So it ends up actually being extremely useful and positive. Um, so, yeah, that that's, I guess, the hardest part that I had. But I'm glad that I had it um, because it does also put me in a very good position um, in terms of sort of collaborations and networks and those sort of things, that sort of international exposure. Um, yeah. other than just going because I mean you often have conferences and things like that that are typically abroad and that's fine but that's typically a week or two at most that you'll spend there whereas I've spent a significant amount of time um, just to do research not necessarily for conferences and things so it's a different dynamic it's, you have to learn to balance that <laughs> intimidation yeah. and the daunting factors and all of those things with realizing you know what I'm here to work I'm here I'm in a good position I'm going to make the most of it and just do what I gotta do and I'll, I'll it'll be good at, in the end <laughs> well, I imagine that's the right attitude I mean what else can you do right yeah no exactly I mean I could allow sort of the the homesickness and all of those things to get the best of me but what is the point of that and yeah and like you say is there's nothing you can do so you just gotta be strong yeah you know <laughs> yeah. you know you signed up for this so exactly see it through yeah and this is this is what i need to do to get to the next step of my career and not just get to the next step but do so in a way that is beneficial to me and will be beneficial to me in the future. Mm. Yeah. So what would you say to other students, maybe someone from the same background, the same sort of <laughs> ideas? Mm. What advice would you give them? You see, <laughs> it's always such a hard question now and I always hesitate to give advice. I know. <laughs> uh, and, I've, and I've said this so many times before is that 
as you say, like you're asking perhaps from the same background because people do come from different backgrounds and people deal with things very differently. Um, well, okay. Uh, what would you have liked to have been told when you were starting out, starting your studies? See, that's also not helpful. Because, <laughs> but what, basically what I would say, and I feel like this is it's so cliche and what you always hear, but it's true, is the fact of the matter is it's not easy doing a PhD in astrophysics or astronomy or pretty much anything probably. Um, and all you can really do is you'll have ups and downs and it'll be really tough sometimes, but all you can really do is you've got to, you've, you have to just work hard and push through it. Um, I know that is a really awful piece of advice, <laughs> but <laughs> coming, and I used to like, I used to think the same when I was told like, oh, you have to work hard and so on and so forth. Like, oh, like, surely you can tell me something different. Surely it's so much more than that. But coming through it and being in the position that I am now, that, that's exactly it. Um, so grit and determination uh, more than yeah, anything else. Exactly. Determination is a very good one. That's, that's a very mm. important term. You have to be determined and you have to be passionate about it because sure, you can be determined to get through it but you're not going to enjoy it then if you're not really passionate about the topic um i i find that sort of what helps me when i'm feeling as though maybe this isn't the place for me is just having that bit of motivation from whether it's watching a silly youtube video about astronomy or just listening to some of the astronomers talk about their science you you hear this passion and you see why you were interested in it from the start and that sort of sparks that extra bit of motivation to keep going at things um that's what helps me at least um but yeah that that determination and passion is definitely important in making it through i would say all right well thanks very much i think we've got some good stuff here yeah. Um, is there anything you'd like to like to mention or or put forward? There are some. Um, there's only one thing I can think of right now. So there are some people from the University of the Western Cape and the University of Cape Town and other um, institutes as well that have that are involved in this sort of outreach project called Molom Klaba. It is typically I think run by uh, a postdoc at UWC called uh, Margarita Molaro, um, in incredible scientist as well. Uh, and essentially what they do is that they go to schools in Kailicha, which is in the Cape Flats, um, and teach young girls um, about physics, about astronomy. Uh, they go from all the way from primary school through to high school, and it's an amazing, amazing initiative that they've they've started, and they're doing some really incredible work. So I think that is something that definitely should be checked out, um, because also all sorts of help is welcome in terms of um, keep this keeping this project going and having people come in and volunteer to do whether teaching or just. Uh, facilitating or things like that it's a it's a very good initiative and I think um, there's a lot of our, our young girls from sort of underprivileged communities don't have as much um, what's the word 
exposure to this field. So I think it's something incredible that they're doing. Um, other than that, yeah, just uh, check out UWC and UCT's astro department. They're really good. I don't know. No, actually, no, don't say that. Cut that out as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, we do have some amazing projects that are trying to swing in the communities. Um, I mean, the, the SKA is doing an incredible job up in uh, Carnarvon with the Meerkat project and with the community there. Um, we, we typically have a good few outreach projects that are happening. Like I said, there's the Mollum Club, I think, as well as um, there was a soapbox science um, event a few weeks ago in Cape Town. Uh, mm-hmm. So this happens annually. And what they do is they have scientists from different fields, typically women, um, essentially stand on a soapbox and explain their science to the public and anyone that's really willing to listen. Uh, so we, they had this in the Waterfront a couple of weeks ago, and it was a really good event, um, sort of just trying to communicate what different people do uh, and why it's important. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, th- th- that's a good thing to keep an eye out for for next year. Um, if they, I think they should have another one next year because it's supposed to be annual. Um, okay, so then... Um... If people would like to like to chat to you or find you on social media or something, are you are you open to that? Or are you on Facebook or Twitter or wherever? Yeah, uh, I'm on Twitter. Um, my handle is what is my handle? I always forget. I think it's th- yeah, Thomas underscore Nicole L. That's T H O M A S underscore N I C O L E L. Great, and I'll stick a link to that on the show notes as well. Uh, so they're currently revamping our our department website, but once that's up, there should be a link to contact um, either the department, if that's what you would prefer, um, probably for outreach as well. And then I think they might have uh, a link to our email addresses as well, if you'd rather prefer to get in touch with me via email. Well then, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Nicole Thomas. If you enjoyed hearing us speak and want more, well, the bad news is that was the last interview of the season. And in fact, the second last episode altogether. Next week is the final Science Explainy bit, and then we're done for 2019. The good news, though, is that I've already started putting together a guest list for season three, which should launch early in 2020. I don't have specific dates yet, because I haven't begun scheduling, but as soon as I do, there will be an announcement on this channel. But this does mean that we are now wide open to suggestions. If you'd like to hear something new, drop an email uh, saying so to podcast at urban-astronomer.com and include all of your suggestions. If you're happy with the show and just want to share some love, you can mail me at the same address, Or you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever directory you use to find the show in the first place. That sort of thing does help push me up in the rankings, which I wouldn't care about except for the fact that it affects whether new people get to hear about the show. And that also makes me feel good. And if you have any questions that you'd like answered, um, if you'd like to hear your very own science explaining bits, well, you know the drill by now. Mail me. That's podcast at (laughs) open-astronomer.com. So, about that final episode, it's a science explainy bit, and we'll be answering 
these questions. Why do all the stars appear to have the same color? Which was sent in by NZCCC. And what's it actually like out there in the vacuum of space? Asked by my co-conspirator and life partner, Catherine Farsfeld. Until that day, though, I am signing off. This is Ellen Farsfeld, and you've been listening to the Urban Astronomer Podcast. Clear skies and good night.